Welcome back to the Non-Accident Novel Review. In this episode, we read and discuss Chapter 9. This chapter begins with a dive into Oliver Cromwell's psyche and ends with Thomas Holm accepting William Penn's offer to be his surveyor in the land to be called Pennsylvania. In this chapter, my focus was on religious ambition and the literal ambition of changing the world. I wanted to portray Oliver Cromwell with sympathy. Although he could be interpreted as a villain in the context of this narrative, I was interested in writing how Cromwell may have seen himself and the world. I viewed his understanding of himself uh, of righteous, pious, and incredibly brave um, in his personality. He sees himself as having the opportunity to seize power to become another king, but instead opts to be England's protector. In this mindset, all of his actions were selfless for the greater good of his country. However, there is doubt that creeps in while on the boat. Doubt that his fate will be like all the rest. That public opinion will turn with him. That his once brave acts will be contorted as demented and cruel. And that he will end up shamefully executed like many rulers before him. While on the boat, he experiences tremendous hallucinations, hinting at the sickness that will soon kill him. In his visions, the waves turn to snakes, which then turn to human faces, my intention being to represent Cromwell's fear manifesting. These evil creatures, pests, the Irish, and other rebels, morphing into actual humans that have died at his hand. He then sees the biblical figure, Aachen, hoarding his spoils of Jericho until he is stoned to death by his own people. Here, that fear of Cromwell's own execution mingled with religious instance that Cromwell likely knew of, and I'd assume draw parallels with. Then the hallucinations revealing the personal, his daughter Elizabeth in a charming tableau until she is face to face with him, places a crown on his head, and then dissolves into sand and blows away. The intent here was to shed Cromwell's massive ambition of global conquest for his country and religion, to the very basic fear of losing a child, and to end up not being the person you thought you were the whole time. After Cromwell dies and eventually gets the superfluous end he feared a year after his death, we transition back to Thomas Holm and William Penn. My intent was to establish the importance of family for home, and paradoxically, his wife's death leaving a huge gap in his life while simultaneously giving him a reason for him to say yes to Penn. Sarah was everything to him, and since he is gone, and she is gone rather, um, he concludes he might as well embark in this massive change, going to the new world and helping Penn establish the future colony. I felt it logical to portray Holm as more of the family man, and Penn as more of a person of wild ambition. Penn comes from a degree of clout, obvious uh, having the prestige of um, having such a large land mass given to him by the king, and in a way, more equipped at being revolutionary of sorts. He's known higher society the bulk of his life and is still not satisfied. 
in that I found him fascinating. A man of means that had a realer capability of changing an element of the world. person arrested for his faith and now with the opportunity to create what would be Pennsylvania. To go from the Tower of England to essentially starting your own world was fascinating to me. In contrast to Cromwell, I wanted uh, Penn and the Quakers to be earnest in their pursuit of peaceful living. I wanted to balance Cromwell's gruesome demise with the bright hope I imagined Penn and the Society of Friends had. Inspiration. I've never been terribly interested in American history after this element, the American Revolution, Declaration of Independence, and so forth. However, this era, the era of Europeans first transitioning over um, to this country, was intriguing to me, especially as I researched more, started to consider the mindset of someone completely uprooting a somewhat developed nation and entering such an unknown part of the world. I had my character motivation in the Irish Rebellion, a thread I could tie to modern Irish Catholic characters in Philadelphia, but I became attached to this idea of people's motivation being a response and rejection to the current world they know. I saw what Penn likely saw, a better world he could shape in his image, and to a slightly lesser extent, home too. I like that there was such, that there wasn't much information about home, rather, outside of one out-of-print biography. He, in a way, literally laid the foundation for Penn's vision, was the one who I saw roaming these unknown, possibly frightening woods, making the city this new Eden or Babylon an actual reality. It was having the stamp on history of the current world, but also being invisible, Penn is atop City Hall, his statue prominent in Philadelphia iconography, and not even knowing a known portrait of home that I could find. This, I thought, was a major advantage thematically as I moved closer to Connor Dempsey and an ordinary group of people in the modern world. Home is the spiritual embodiment of these characters in neighborhood, working humbly with his own beliefs, seldom recognized, it's still having a slight impact on the world, though they will never truly be known to most. Craft and Structure I chose to shift from a surface-level portrayal of the mundane in Chapter 8 in Michael Dempsey with the high-stakes elements of Chapter 9, Oliver Cromwell and William Penn in particular, to keep my non-exited theme in three dimensions. No... Wanting to fail on the person scale, uh, Michael Dempsey, and not wanting to fail in the global and spiritual sense in Cromwell and Penn. Although characters are from different times and perspectives, I wanted there to be reflections in how they are haunted by the world. Michael Dempsey still feels haunted by how the Vietnam draft altered his trajectory while Cromwell is haunted by a demise that must eventually come, and penned by the wrath of his father, and times imprisoned and persecuted for his beliefs. I've never been terribly aware of my own culture, or under the belief that there were elements that I needed to adhere to, 
um, or which defined me. However, we are obvious products of previous generations. Over the last few chapters, I wanted to establish that. Cromwell rising through his opposition of the current monarchy, his eventual death and reestablishment of monarchy. Um, Holm having to be a soldier to quench rebellions, seeing the bloodshed inspiring himself and others to find a new path and new world. On and on until we see Michael Dempsey struggling with this as a youth and the struggles that his son will eventually and inevitably face as well. No real established culture defined way to be, just acknowledging that the generation prior continuing, denying, or readjusting it to fit your own needs. With this audio review format, I do explain my aims and underlying methods in writing, but I've always deeply resisted being preachy or giving readers instructions on how to live their lives. In that, I try to present it all. If it is working correctly, you are challenged to discern what works. Um, which characters you agree and disagree with, and hopefully make your own interpretations and decisions. In that method, I aim at the writing resembling actual life, sometimes giving insights and answers, but also leaving questions with uh, not always an obvious right or wrong. Best literature I have ever read has this quality. Each time I read, I have a slightly different opinion or perspective. In that, it feels alive, moving and still, complicated and simple all at once. Chapter 9. He had one image, one tableau in his mind, as he and his advisors and confidants sailed back from Hispaniola. It was the golden crown and scepter, gently laying on the uncut purple velvet table. Members of Parliament gathered around in the Great Hall in their long curled wigs and colonels and generals of his new model army, with polished silver breastplates and scabbards, all men with giddy smiles on their visages, all looking at him. Oliver Cromwell, the man who had taken down a tyrant and quenched revolutions in Ireland and Scotland, and had brought Mother England into a time of relative peace and a global juggernaut, growing colonies in the Caribbean islands and the New World of America, and more importantly and justly, brought God, the real God, back to his people, all of them waiting for this great man to be thus greater and humbly kneel down on one knee, and them to place the crown on his head and place the fine fur of, on his shoulder, and place the scepter in his hand and allow them to call him king. He knew that this offer was of the utmost genuine of sentiments, as every man in the room despised kings and monarchy as much or greater than Cromwell himself, and that they presented the crown to him because they truly believed in him and knew he was not their leader because of royal blood and providence, but that he placed each English man before himself for love of country and religion, and he had been the pragmatic yet brave man who was worthy to lead. He was their king because he did not desire to be their king, and perhaps because they knew that he would do exactly as he had done, deny the crown and say he would only be the protector and not their ruler. They had taken his words to heart and named him Lord Protector of England. He had fought against ceremony or any royal semblance, but they had convinced him it was for the good of England, that the people needed to see their leader as clearly not an ordinary man. 
they needed the formality to see the rich garbs and glittering symbols. So they had him walk down the aisle and sit in King Edward's chair, and they put the tapestries on his shoulders, and they placed the scepter in his hands, and they all bowed to him, and the trumpets blared, and he looked into the crowd and knew that no matter the title, he was their king, and even he could not stop their worship of men. He sat on the king's chair and thought of his days as a young man in fury for the dissolute rule of King Charles, and pounding his fists on the table, and calling for justice, and a government that speaks for the people, and then the uprise actually happening, and Charles tried and beheaded and soon Cromwell was in England, and killing those who were now leading a revolution against him, and he figured his day would most likely come as well, but maybe he could move the needle of man just enough that things would change, and whether he be loved or hated, the hearts of man could live in bravery and in service of something greater than themselves. The sea was turning his stomach, and he began to sweat from his brow. He sat down on a bench on the starboard side and dreamily looked at the waves dancing endlessly, one action influencing the next in an internal back and forth, ultimately meaning nothing. He scratched at the mosquito bites on his arms. He had fought in countless battles, and no man would ever draw his blood. But this lowly insect had the gall to land on his skin and draw its greedy beak into his, the Lord Protector of England's body. He stared deeper into the waves and began to see snakes underneath them. These snakes, black, blue, and green, were soon the waves themselves, myriad for as far as he could see. They hissed and lashed their tongues at him, and they began to cry, death wails sounding like humans begging for mercy. Their reptilian faces morphed into faces of pale men and women, and then the snakes became arms and hands reaching out to him. And then he saw Achan of ancient Israel squirming out of the crowd with golden cups and jewels, and then surrounding Achan were all the spoils of Jericho, and then the ocean turned to blood, and the spoils were washed away, and the hands returned holding stones, and the stones were hurled at Achan until he lay prostrate on the sea of hands, and the stones buried his lifeless body, and the hands grew long and tentacled, and built great castles with the stones, while the other hands pulled the stones apart and crumbled the castles and sprigs of clover emerged from the stone. And then he saw his little daughter Elizabeth frolicking in the clover with her curly hair bouncing on her shoulders. And then she began to rapidly grow in age until she was a woman and looked at Cromwell with her ice blue eyes and held his sword covered in blood. And she floated to the gunwale of the ship and tapped his shoulders with the bloody sword until it was the shape of a crown and placed it on his head and told him this is what you deserve. And then she grew pale and emaciated, and then her skin was nearly translucent, and her eyes rolled to the back of her head, and her cheeks caved into themselves, and her lips shriveled into the back of her skull, and then she dissolved into a pillar of sand and then blew away, and he fell to the floor of the ship. The ship reached England, and his colonels carried him down into his room, where he raved like a madman for days, until finally, after a lifetime of fighting, he slipped into death. His body was draped in kingly robes, and the scepter and crown were placed in his tomb. And it was not for a year after his burial that his body finally felt the conclusion it knew it would, and it was hanged outside of Westminster Abbey for a day, and then it was decapitated, and the Cromwell head jammed on top of a twenty-foot spike until a storm broke the pole in half and the head rolled away with the rain. Penn and Holm, with his teenage son Thomas, walked along the fields of Limerick. Sarah had passed the autumn before, and Holm was still adjusting to his added parental role in the household. Sarah and Thomas had lived together in Limerick for nearly 20 years, 
Sarah giving birth to 10 children, with six passing away within the year. Sarah seemed to work every minute of her life, nursing wounded soldiers, taking care of the children, and cooking and cleaning the house. Then, becoming a prominent force in the Children of Light, the Society of Friends in Ireland, and even getting arrested on several occasions. So it was truly unfair for her to be stricken with a fever one evening, and not able to leave her bed for a week and die in a cold sweat, while Thomas held her hand and the children gathered around her bed. There now, with Sarah gone, and his religion as a Quaker facing heavy persecution from the government, seemed to be very little left for him in the United Kingdom. Following father's death, King Charles has granted me the territory of West Jersey. My father served the crown well, and this is what he has been gifted, Penn spoke while tucking a strand of hair behind his cap. He had smallpox as a child and had to wear a wig until he was 18. He now took pride in having his own hair and took great care in making sure it was presentable. Thomas nodded solemnly and waited for Penn to continue, as home often contemplated deeply before responding. Our kind are no longer wanted here. We have faced great abuses and imprisonment. Our eyes have witnessed only blood on these lands. Kings live long enough just to be hanged and have their guts spilled across the island. We can create our own path. We can learn from their errors. It's a new world, a new life. I have property here, Penn. I've worked hard to gain the status I now have. But how many times have they taken what's yours? How many times will they do it again? You are a noble, but you are still under the yoke of the crown, and whatever their current whims may be. You speak truth. What would be my role? I want a great city in this new land. My cousin Silas Crispin, unfortunately, passed on his way to, well, Charles commissioned this land to be Pennsylvania. Ha, your humility astounds. If anything, it is for my father's memory. Penn thought of his father often. He remembered the summer when his father left for Ireland, and he did not return for over a year. He remembered their neighbor Samuel, drunkenly drunkenly staggering into the family parlor and reaching for his mother's breasts, and then when she shoved him away, making his way over to his sister to try to do the same. Penn remembered his father marching down the road and beating Samuel to a bloody pulp, and then taking his sword out to finish the deed, but then lowering it and placing it back in his holster. It was with this rage that often returned when he thought of his father, Admiral William Penn. Penn recalled coming back from school at age 18 and raving about the Society of Friends who preached peace, and his father canning him until he was out on the road and sent to Paris to get away from these friends the following day. Penn did not relent, keeping his pen and voice active so all could experience this Society of Friends and become children of light. He was jailed many times and even thrown into the Tower of England and deprived food and water and threatened with life imprisonment, but he did not budge. This world of bloodiness and death needed to stop, and if he be the sacrifice so life wasn't a series of deaths at the mercy of some crazed tyrant, then so be it. His father would intervene and place his bail, though Penn did not want it, and his father would snarl and reprimand Penn for his dissonance and stubbornness and backwards religion, with Penn's only response being, I can only do what is in my heart, what I feel is right, until his father grew old and sick and smiled on his son and said that I now understand. Even if I disagree, you are only doing what I have done my entire life. You are braver than I have been without the blade. And he passed one cool September night in 1670. I would like you to be my surveyor for these new lands, to help to forge the great city of the world. 
a city of brothers and sisters, a place of no malice and avarice. You see it here in the hills of Ireland. These people crave peace, a new world, a blank slate, a new Eden under the providence of God. Are you my man for this? Holmes saw these lands and he saw Sarah. She was in the shorelines and in the public house and cobblestone roads. She was in each leaf of each clover, each cloud along the cliff. It would be the challenge of his life, but the time of serving just to have the bread ripped from your mouth was over. It was time to go. Yes, I am your man. I knew you would be. We sail on the Amity in April under Captain Richard Diamond. Make your arrangements and prepare your provisions. It is at least a two-month's journey, and the seas are rough, but the seas of change always are. That concludes Chapter 9. Tune in next time for the review and reflection of Chapter 10. As always, thank you for listening and supporting. Non-Exodus should be available on Amazon in printed and ebook formats. Please check our links for updates on books, episodes, and social media. Until next time.